This episode of The Vincast is proudly supported by Sheba, Australia's first and only active all-female rideshare service getting women and children where they need to go. You can use Sheba in Melbourne, Geelong, Sydney, Brisbane, Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast and it will be available in Perth, Darwin and Adelaide soon. On episode 128 of the Vincast, I chat with Rory Lane, a modern pioneer of garage winemaking for his brand, The Story. Hello there, Vincasters. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And the uh, the end of the year is rapidly approaching once again. Uh, we're heading into uh, festive occasions. Uh, hopefully, we uh, will all be having the opportunity to drink some great wine, particularly some wines that are being made in Australia. I do hope uh, the podcast has given you some inspiration and introduction to some great wine being made here in Australia, uh, particularly by uh, this week's guest. Uh, And I do hope you support local wine producers, uh, your local wine bars, restaurants and wine shops. But uh, uh, I'm really, really excited uh, for tonight. If you're listening to the episode uh, when the day comes out, which is the 5th of December, uh, to introducing you to uh, the first ever live episode of the podcast. Uh, the Vincast Live uh, will be streaming uh, on probably Facebook Live, so please make sure you're following the, the Intrepid Winer on Facebook. Uh, and if you can be there in person, fantastic. There are still tickets available. There will be a limited amount available on the door. So uh, please, if you can, book ahead. Uh, at Noisy Ritual, 6.30 p.m. doors will open for a 7.30 p.m. start. I can't wait to introduce introduce you to my uh, my co-host, Nevin Asparovska, who, who also hosts the Quickie podcast. She's a, a wine enthusiast herself. Uh, and Dan Buckle, former guest on episode 67, I think, uh, and Ben Rankin, a uh, guest on the most recent episode of the podcast, will be uh, we'll all be talking about what are the right in inverted commas, grape varieties for Australian wine. I'm super excited. Uh, make sure that you, uh, if you can't be there and uh, you miss out on the live stream, the podcast uh, episode will be available here on the Vincast. Um, have a listen in and you'll find out, hopefully, that uh, everyone has a great time. There will be some wine tasting as a part of that event. So I'm really excited to see you all there, or as many of you as possible, I guess. Uh, so as mentioned, I've got another fantastic winemaker on uh, this episode, Rory Lane, who um, actually uh, was uh, my kind of advisor for my wine this year, 2017 Vintage, uh, Rory Lane. He has his own brand, uh, The Story, and uh, has a great reputation and following for his wines. Uh, but he also makes the wines at the Craft & Co. farm down at Bangholm, which is uh, the Melbourne side of Frankston, uh, which is where I made my wine for this year and will for next year. And uh, he was a really amazing help for me uh, as a still relatively inexperienced winemaker. Uh, so it was great to actually sit down with him and find out more about his story. I do hope you enjoy our chat. Please do stick around till the end to find out how you can get in contact with myself and Rory. Uh, but until then, I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> 
Rory, we are sitting on a glorious afternoon here at uh, the Craft & Co winery out of Bangholm. Uh, and we're here to chat. And so thank you very much for making some time to be on the Vincast. Pleasure. Um, I start every episode, as my listeners would know, by asking my guests if they can remember, uh, was it a particular incident, an experience in your life that made you take more notice with wine? Uh, or did you kind of gradually find yourself working with wine and, and you found yourself uh, very passionate about it? I think there's always a couple of wow moments, but the start for me was um, was really sort of in the absence of anything else to do after I um, did my undergrad degree. So I was looking for, well, I was at Monash Uni and um, I'd finished my um, my honours in comparative literature, which is not very interesting for most people. And um, well, I I did uh, I did literature at university. What's comparative literature? Uh, it's basically literature from other cultures. Oh, okay. Um, or from other times. Um, and there's also an element of um, uh, critical theory thrown into it as well. Right. Um, cultural theory and critical theory. Okay. Yeah, so it's kind of literary, literary theory plus things like, um, you know, you might study in particular um, Asian travel writing or... Oh, know, wow, okay. Or well, not that I did, but um, I did... Um, my major was in um, ancient Greek literature, so like Greek tragedy and those like sorts of things. Euripides? Euripides and Sophocles, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Aeschylus, those guys. Um, and did you get into wine around about that time? Yeah, yeah. So after I finished um, I finished that, I was, I guess I was looking for something else to do and Monash Uni had just started a, a wine school out of their Frankston Peninsula campus. Okay. It no longer exists. Yeah. But, um, first I've ever heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> So I was I started that in about two thousand and one I believe and did it as they offered it as a master's course. Mm-hmm. So I did um, wine technology and marketing down there for part time for five years. Did you yeah. think of that 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 would be something as far as a career? No, no, not really. I think at the time I was just looking for something else to try, and thankfully university was a lot cheaper and more accessible back then. So I thought oh, I'll give it a go, and I like wine, and my family. Family's not involved in the wine industry at all, but always had wine around the table. And um, so I thought, yeah, I'll try this. It sounds interesting. And then it wasn't until I went and worked in wineries, which I tried to do really quickly. I went overseas and worked in Oregon for a couple of vintages in the early 2000s. And that was where I, I sort of fell in love with it because it was mainly to do with the fun of vintage. Yeah. Like vintage is great fun, especially yep. when you're 23. Yeah. And you know, the sights and the smells and the hard work and the... Working drink team. Yeah, working with good people and, you know, drinking lots of great wine. Um, it just seemed like a bit of a wonderland. Being away from home. Being away from home, yeah, in a Where, strange country. Was that part of the reason to, to go and seek work overseas? Because, like, you had done the study, you could go and get a job overseas. It's like, this is a nice opportunity for me to get away. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was a, it was a good way to travel, Um and earn some money at the same time. Not a lot of money, mind you, but... Um, Enough to support your travel. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and it just seemed like a nice little chunk of time, you know, a vintage three, three four months tops. Sure. And, um, yeah, it was that first vintage in Oregon, I think, that um, 
yeah, I, I had so much fun. I thought, yeah, this is for me. Was that in the Willamette Valley? Yeah, yeah. I worked for a, a, a vineyard called Adelsheim Vineyard. Yeah, yeah. So they've been there. One of the older ones. Cool. In the region. Yeah, lovely people. Um, and actually, I, I actually had the winemaker as a guest on the podcast previously. Oh, Dave, Dave Page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been there for forever. He, um, it's a lovely bloke. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I worked for him in '02, and then in '03 I worked for another company called A to Z Wineworks. Yep. Which was then both, tiny. Both imported by Steve Norton at Pinot now. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Um, I, I was um, yeah, kind of involved in in that in setting up some of those. Oh, there you go. Okay, interesting. Back in the day, interesting. Um, he certainly set me up with uh, quite a few appointments in the Willamette, which is great. Oh yeah, yeah, and and it's. It's a beautiful part of the world. It is, and and I love Portland. Yeah, cool, and being cool being town. so close to Portland, I could see myself living there and even commuting out. Yeah, well, it's only forty five minutes mm. or so from um, from Portland, and Portland's a nice sized town, and it's a great cultural city, and there's good eating, good drinking, good great music, good people, good people. Yeah, yeah, and and certain things are legal. Uh, there that uh, aren't legal in other states <laughs> or in Australia for that matter <laughs> um, and so between those two vintages did you travel or did you come home uh, get some came home I uh, travelled for quite a while um, and then came home and worked vintage in Australia um, actually that would have been start of 03 so yeah I'd, I was working in a little wine shop well not a wine shop I was, was working in a wine shop doing retail stuff but I was also working for a company called Australian Australian Winemakers who uh-huh. are now the guys behind the Craft & Co. Right. Um, and they had a little um, winery equipment store in North Melbourne and I used to work there helping backyard winemakers. On Victoria Street? Yeah, just on Peel Street, right near the corner of Peel Street and Victoria Street. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I worked there for two or three years Um as their kind of in-house winemaker, running a little lab there. Technical consultant type of yeah, thing. Yeah, but really it was just backyard winemakers coming in and sure. showing me little jars yeah, full of like crappy backyard, wine. Like backyard brewers or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, oh, okay. A lot, of, um, a lot of Italian and Greek migrants and, um, and Eastern Europeans as well who you know, had brought the concept of making wine from sure. the old country sure. and they were buying grapes in from God knows where and yeah, making bathtub, bathtub wine and trying to get me to fix it. Yeah, okay. Right. That must have been a pretty interesting experience. It was the best fault analysis and fault training you could ever have. Yeah. You would have seen every fault under the sun. Yeah, yeah, and some you've never heard of, like just some <laughs> wines that were so, so bad. And, and these were people that had invested – not a lot of money, but they'd really invested their sort of cultural identity and their heart and soul into this stuff and they really wanted to make it work. And in a lot of those communities, it's there are big competitions between people as to, you know, who can make the best wine. They do have, like, competitions for, like, the, the best home homemade wine, don't they? Yeah. They, they still do that. Yeah, they do. There's amateur wine guilds, like the Frankston Amateur Wine Guild, I yeah. think, is still, is still going. And there's one out at Eltham. Okay. And they run little wine shows and stuff, but it's yeah, it's hyper competitive yeah. within, the, within the little communities, and um, yeah, but there'd be you just don't see those kind of faults in most wineries. Mm. So it was fantastic training for me. Mm. 
Because even in, in, in your studies, you would have learnt about faults, but from a commercial perspective. Yeah. Like not from a homemade, it's like I've never even seen that happen before. I can't even imagine how that happened. And often the faults that you, the fault analysis you do in wine school are um, adopted samples. So it'll right. be, you know, the smell of Britannomyces yeah. that's been added to a sound wine. Yeah. As opposed to... If they add smoke taint to a wine... Yeah, yeah, that's right. As okay. opposed to it just being there because the wine is spoiling. Mm. Um, so yeah, lots of weird VA incomplete fermentation. <laughs> I'm pretty issues. sure. I'm pretty sure most wineries wouldn't want to admit they've got a fault, rather than saying, "Oh, I've got I've, I've got a barrel here that's full of Brett. Does anyone want it for an, an you know a uni analysis?" <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, that, I, I reckon that um, without meaning to, that was sort of critical for my early winemaking. Okay. Um, so, so where did your head sort of next in, in your journey? I was pretty much straight into making my own wine. Really? Yeah, okay. I wanted to do it. I like. Was there much of that going on? Were there many kind of startup wine brands at that time? Not really. Um, certainly not people that were living in the city. I'm sure there were lots of guys who were um, either had family you know, out in the Yarra Valley or Mornington, places like that, that, you know, had access to vineyards and um, who lived in and amongst it, who were starting their own thing. But I, I didn't... Who might have been employed by a winery and then said, oh, I'm going to just do a bit of this on the side. Yeah. Kind of have a corner of the winery kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But at, at that time, there, there weren't a lot of, I guess, true from, startups from that scratch. were... Yeah, that were from scratch, that were just saying, oh, I want to buy some grapes and make it in a garage. Right. Um, unless they were like amateur amateurs like the kind of guys I've, I was dealing with. Um, Where it's not, it's not for sale, it's just for yeah, consumption. Yeah, that's right. So first vintage was 03. Me and a mate did that and then um, he moved and then um, 04 was the first vintage I did from Grampian's Grapes. Right. And I'm still dealing with the same vineyards now. So what made you want to... Rather than go and work for, you know, become a winemaker for uh, another business, for an employer, um, what made you decide that you said, no, I'm just going to do this my own, my own way and I'm going to start something from scratch? It must have been pretty daunting. Yeah, no, no, not at all. No? I was 23. I didn't care. Like, you why were, not? You're full of piss and vinegar. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, but the, I had nothing to lose and... I've actually thought about this quite a bit and it, I think it was great to start really uh, earlier and without the influence of a lot of other winemakers around me because I think you just have this naive confidence that you're going to be able to make something. You're and sort of young enough to know, well, if if it fails, I've still got plenty of time to, to find something that's going to work. Yeah, yeah, rather exactly. Rather than like having a family and, and a mortgage and say, well, if, if this fails, then we're in a bit of trouble. Yeah, well, it's not just you that is failing then, is yeah. it? It's, um, it has an impact on other people. And yeah. But back then, yeah, at that age, all I had to do was scrape enough money together to buy a couple of tonnes of grapes and then a couple of old barrels and a couple of open fermenters. I think the outlay might have been, I don't know, five or $6,000 or something like that. It wasn't heaps. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you can afford to lose at that stage. And so I just I had an idea of what I wanted to make 
So what 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 influenced the idea that you had? Well, what actually first? What was the idea that you, you had? Well, the the real idea came from um, working in Oregon, really, and it was from microbreweries. Um, I wanted to do have a little urban winery somewhere, and, and even even small batch brewing was pretty unknown in Australia or not unknown but it was there weren't a lot of microbreweries in Australia at that time certainly in Oregon Portland in particular that was fairly uh, well developed at that point yeah it was it was kind of one of the the hubs of microbrewing in the states and probably worldwide at that stage other than you know historical tradition in um, in Europe in Germany and the UK and places like that but um, as far as sort of new world brewing goes then Portland was certainly one of the important places and I was just blown away by the diversity and the, the ability to kind of go out and break the rules and have crazy packaging and have have fun with it and all these small breweries were quite successful and there were there were breweries that were in the middle of town in Portland yeah. and I thought well, why can't you do that with wine and why can't and maybe there were people doing it I didn't know of any and again that's where come we're being 23 and no, not knowing any yeah. better comes into it. You just go, why can't I do this? I can, I can have a go at that. Yep. So, yeah, in 04, I just, I just did it. I, um, I rented a little factory in Cheltenham and started making wine there. What was the factory set up to do? Was it was it? Uh, oh, it's just suitable? a concrete floor. Okay. Um, four walls and a concrete floor. There's no cooling, no drainage, no insulation, no nothing. Yeah. Um, so you could only do reds there really, because you needed some refrigeration for whites. Yeah. But um, I did up to about 10 tonnes there, 10, 12 tonnes, something like that. And okay. I had that place for... Just on your own? Yeah, yeah, just on my own. Um, for about five years, four years, something like that. Wow. Um, and so that, that was the original idea, was to have this little urban winery that allowed me to live in the city still, because I figured that, I saw people who were living, like growers that were living out on the land and making wine that had no real knowledge or connection to where their wine was being consumed. Yeah. Um, they'd just send it to a distributor and away it would go. Maybe spend one or two days out, out in a trade a year or go to a big portfolio tasting, something like that. Yeah. But not actually be out and, you know, amongst it, going to the bars and restaurants. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, plus... You know, they had to wear that extra distribution layer, that 30%, 40%. And I thought, well, I can do that myself. Mm-hmm. And when you're that small and that young, you can. You just go and do it all. So I just made, you know, a few tonnes of Grampian Shiraz, which I, that's what I really wanted to make. What, what's, uh, what were your influences as far as the, the kind of wine you wanted to make or the varieties or the regions you wanted to work with? Um the influence there was twofold. One was my family was originally from, or well, my dad's family is from Western Victoria, but down on the coast near Warrnambool. Okay. So he grew up on a spud farm down there. Um, had nothing to do with wine, but the closest region was Grampians. Sure. Um, sort of and between so there was, Henty and Grampians. Yeah, well, yeah. Henty obviously was a, and is a region, but there weren't many wineries right no. now, right near there. It was probably closer to go to the Grampians. Sure. Um, and Which obviously has a lot more history as well. Yeah, yeah. And there were established producers there and I just really liked the wines of um, Mount Langeran and some of the Sepult wines. And um, I think it was that 
cooler climate style of Shiraz that wasn't really made in many places in Australia so at that, that stage. So that style still wasn't particularly popular as it is no. now? No, I mean, talking like early, very early 2000s, um, we're still in the grips of big Parker wines. Right. Um, and, you know, some of those wines were, were and are, um, are great wines and I've got nothing against that, but I just wanted to... I liked something that was a little more savoury and a little more spicy and um, seemed, the wines from there just seemed to have this kind of effortlessness mm-hmm. and this kind of, they just felt like they evolved out of the ground and didn't have a lot of artifice attached to them and they tasted like they came from this place that was different to anywhere else and um you know, they, back then they probably had heaps more new oak than they do now, so maybe they weren't so unfettered. But um, I was drawn to those wines, and that's that's what I wanted to make. Do you think the the fact that the wines of that style were weren't as popular as they are now was helpful in terms of you being able to seek out a fruit supply? Definitely, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I could get access to really nice old vineyards. Sure. That. Um, grew magnificent fruit and um possibly paying a little bit more for it now yeah yeah i would be yeah paying a bit more for it but (laughs) true although you know inflation in the wine industry basically hasn't occurred for 15 to 20 years don't tell anyone yeah (laughs) um well from a producer's point of view it's 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 tough but um yeah i remember working in retail in around that time and a bottle of Mount Langy Cliff Edge was $29. Mm. And these days, a bottle of Mount Langy Cliff Edge is about $29. That, I think that has a lot to do with the competition. There is so much more wine in the market. There's so much more wine being imported. So there's just more price pressure rather than the, the value going up. And, and irony being, of course, that generally quality has improved as well. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, quality's improved. Our ability to make wine... More easy, better wine more easily has and the um, diversity of styles. Yeah, oh, and there's there's so much more wine in the market as you say, yeah. um, both from here and noticeably from abroad. Um, Australia was still a pretty closed shop as far as imports go, other mm-hmm. than at the very top end. Mm-hmm. And now there's you know there's imported wine everywhere, and that's that's a good thing. But um, yeah, it was. It, I think that there the amount of wine in the market has certainly contributed to the fact that there's not, hasn't been that mm. inflation. But it should happen. It's happened in other places. Yeah. Eventually, it would be nice for customers to want to spend a bit more on wine and to ha- hopefully have a bit more understanding about the value of, of a wine. Yeah. Well, uh, I, rather than ba- you know, basing their decision-making purely on a, on a variety and a price. Yeah, it depends on... Um, there are, there's a huge spectrum in wine. It's not there is some wine that's that is just a basic commodity. It's cornflakes, like you know, you go and buy a bottle of wine because you just want to drink and you don't want to think about it. Yeah. Um, and there's a place for that. It's an interesting overall category in that respect because there's stuff that's incredibly status driven and incredibly um, uh, where price is not a factor, and then there's stuff where absolutely price is a factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got to kind of navigate your 
your little niche within that. Yeah, yeah. Bringing a bringing a product to market and kind of making decisions like pricing is uh, is pretty complicated because because you, you kind of have to think long term. Was that something quite challenging when you when you brought your was it has it always been the story? Yeah, yeah, it has. So when you brought the first wines from the story to market, yes, um, was was that uh, an interesting experience? Um, depends how much guts you've got. Um, I, I think it's difficult to be taken seriously bringing out, as a young new producer, bringing out very expensive wines. With no with pedigree. No, yeah. Yeah, no inverted commas. Um, but some people are able to do it and good luck to them. Um, I think I was... I think I was wanting to sell my wine so that I could get some money back in the door so that I could keep doing it. And the safest way to do that was to make them affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that my market realistically at that stage was friends and family and basically people my own age and they weren't going to spend 50 bucks on a bottle of wine. No. When you're 24, you might spend 50 bucks on a slab but not <laughs> not a nice bottle of wine necessarily unless it's for a very special occasion. So Yeah, you might get like a, a really nice bottle of scotch but you know that that's going to last a while. Well, hopefully... <laughs> Depends on how big a night you're having, James. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the pricing decision was was a pretty simple one. It was, who am I going to sell it to? What can they afford? How am I going to make a reasonable amount of money? The margin that I needed to make was probably less than what I need to make these days because the cost layers were less. Um, it, the cost of living is a bit different now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly factoring my mortgage into it has changed. <laughs> the way I decide on my pricing but um, but then you've got there's other things that go into it like what you think the actual quality in realistic terms is and there's perceived quality and those kinds of things but you've got a reasonable idea of what you think the quality of your product is and you you try and benchmark that against some other products some like products in the market and hopefully they stack up and then you've just got to make sure that you can make a living out of it so I wanted to make them affordable enough that I could turn it around quickly um, but not too cheap that I'd never make a dime out of it. Mm. Sincerest apologies for interrupting another fascinating Vincast chat but I wanted to mention the supporter of this episode of the podcast. So I'm speaking exclusively to the female listeners of the podcast who might happen to be at a wine event, a dinner or something like that in the city and uh, looking at a way to get home. Why not consider the new Australian Sheba app, which has been set up by women for women. Sheba is a safe and convenient form of transportation for female-only passengers, uh, which makes you feel more comfortable because not only are all the the drivers females themselves, but they also take home 85% of the revenue. So I highly recommend checking out the app and finding out if Sheba is available in your area. Get started with Sheba today. Visit the Apple Store or the Google Play Store to download the Sheba app and get riding in minutes. When you ride with Sheba, you're getting where you need to go and connecting with a ride-sharing community full of exceptional Australian women. Download the app today. What was the? Who was the first really significant um, champion for the story wines? Was it uh, someone in the trade? Was it a, a, a wine writer, perhaps? Uh, I was very lucky. Um, 
quite early on that there were some writers who um, who jumped on it and said, hey, this is really interesting and maybe they just like the story mm. behind the story. Um, so, As, as so, any true journalist would. <laughs> yeah. So certainly people like Campbell Mattinson were um, big early supporters and they gave me a lot of their time. And um, But I was also very... I knew from the start that you've got to cultivate those relationships or they're not really relationships. They're just you've got to make sure that if you're going to send a product to a reviewer that you do it in a way that it's going to get some attention or at least they're going to look, they're going to want to be favourably predisposed to it. Um, so, you know, you write them a nice letter and you um, you tell them about it in a, an honest way and you don't you don't try and bullshit them and you um, just try, hopefully try and make it sound interesting and then hopefully the booze behind it stands up. Yeah. But yeah, certainly um, Campbell Mattinson gave me some very nice words early on in a few publications and then I think our 06 wines um, got some great reviews from Halliday and that... Um, and there was a write-up in the Australian, and um, so there was a bit of notice from that. And then I, um, that got some retailers interested, some early retailers interested. Certainly, people like um, the Dana brothers at um, Boccaccio Sellers were very early trade supporters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just set about trying to build a, a small independent off-premise list and a. Um, a decent on-premise list. Yeah. Just went and wore out some shoe leather. So was that challenging because uh, you were just self-distributing the wines? Most of this, or yeah. almost all of it, would have been going into Melbourne? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. A bit into Sydney, um, but mostly Melbourne. And, yeah, it is. And to this day, it's still the most challenging part of what I do is selling the stuff, you know. You've, um, As I think you said to me uh, just the other day after I... I had my bottle bottle of my first 2017 wines and said that's the easy part now you got to go and sell it yeah yeah that's right i think somebody gave me the same advice quite early <laughs> on it was a little bit deflating but you soon realize that yeah you, it's pretty easy to um build a warehouse full of wine the hard part is to empty the warehouse full of wine um i think that's something that your your father says to you when you're a child it's like it's easy to spend money but it's a lot harder to make money <laughs> yeah yeah that's true <laughs> and let's face it it's pretty fun spending money on making wine isn't yeah. it as both of our families would probably attest yes um well they probably more they probably enjoy the drinking more than the making of it yes that's right <laughs> um but uh yeah you i think as a small uh, an early the early part of my brand and my wine journey, for want of a better term, um, just putting your face in front of as many people as possible and trying to be sincere about it is the most is probably the most important thing you can do. Mm. What uh, what was the significant event that uh, allowed you to take the story to the next level and and look at you know dramatically increasing production and looking at you know, engaging with distributors and potentially mm. looking at uh, exporting the wine. Was it, uh, was it something that with you or was it the, the, a little bit markets? Oh, uh, there's... Or a combination? I suppose a few things have to fall your way or you have to have some successes in order to keep going and you have to have people that are willing to support you and buy into what you're doing, mm. figuratively and literally. But um, really... 
it's pretty simple mathematics. Like you just say, okay, I want to make a living out of this. I want to make this my life. So I think I need X dollars to live. Yep. And that's different for everybody, that figure. Um, and so you work backwards. Well, that's what I did anyway. I just worked backwards and thought, how much wine do I have to make and how much wine do I have to sell in order to have a what I consider to be a comfortable life and run a small business and support my family and um, not have to work for anybody else ever again. Um, so... I knew right from the start that I wanted it to be my own. I wanted to work for myself and I wanted to be a small business owner and um, not have to answer to anybody else because I just don't like being told what to do. Mm. But um, so then, yeah, you just got to work out how how it's possible. And um, I soon realised that, you know, you've got to make X amount of wine at X margin to make X amount of dollars to live a comfortable life. And right. So that necessitates how much wine you make, and I think it just went from there. It wasn't, it wasn't that I said, "Oh, I really want to be a hundred thousand case brand and be a big, big success story or a giant tech startup kind of thing and make a gazillion dollars." It's um, it was and, more. And you weren't, then you weren't looking at other brands and saying, "I want to be bigger than that brand" or anything like that. No, no, it's um there are other people that sort of go along in parallel to you when you're doing what you're doing and it, you can't help but compare yourself to those people in some respect but I certainly didn't really care. Uh, it was just about I had a, what I thought was a business model in mind that would be, um, that would work hopefully and deliver a deliver me a good life and that's all I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the volume... The numbers came out of that, and so I make you know forty tons worth, give or take, and assuming that I can sell all of that through a, a mixture of uh, domestic on premise, export, direct, you know, all the different channels in a few different markets, and yeah, it should deliver me a good life. That's all I want. Um, did you enjoy the opportunity to get out? Um, and engage with uh, the consumers, whether it's sort of tastings in, in wine stores or dinners or, you know, traveling to state, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's um, it's important not to lose sight of what consumers are looking for. Um, although, I guess it probably, probably sounds a bit arrogant. In a way, I, I just want to make what I want to make. Um, I think as soon as you start chasing a market, a lot of people in lots of different products talk about, you know, making sure you're making your product for a market and knowing what your consumer wants and putting your consumer first. And I think that's true of a lot of things. Um, I don't know if it's true of wine. I think it's got to be a combination of that and having a your own personal vision. Because mm. people, they don't, at this kind of level... If you're a one-man band, people are buying your product, but they're also buying they're buying into you. Yeah. And so unless you've got to sell that vision of what you do and why you do it, then I mean that that's the most compelling argument. That's the most compelling way to sell wine is for people to buy into what you do. 
and and so yeah, I, I guess there there is that that part of the market, that niche, that does want to engage with the person who's making their product rather than going into a large chain wine store and just going, I know that brand, but I don't have any engagement with this beyond just knowing what it is and just drinking it. That's it. Uh, you know, it doesn't bother me where it comes from or who makes it or, yeah. you know, beyond, uh, it, it, I like that one. It's the right price for what I want to spend. Yeah, and I guess um, when you're involved in chain retail, then that's kind of, that's where you're playing. Yeah. Um, but at the kind of smaller end of the market, there's you, different equity in that brand, though. Whereas the equity in your brand is you, for, to, 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 for the most part. Yeah, I, I, I think one of the it reminds me of a bit of advice. It's kind of a throwaway line, really. Um, when I was only a couple of years into what I was doing, and it was an, another winemaker who um, who's who started their own brand is quite successful now, um, but he said. Look, doesn't matter what you call your brand; it's still gonna. People are still gonna be buying Rory Lane wines. Yeah, and that's that's always stuck with me. Um, because yeah, people are. Uh, if you can engage with a consumer, then um, they want to buy into you as well. At some point, did you um, get approached to um, consult as a winemaker? Uh, yeah, here and there along the way, um, people have asked me to help out, um, at probably just in the last three or four years more than before then. Um, I guess there's a lot, there's a lot of brands that have started in the last five years, we'll say that, um, uh, are similar to the way I started what, what I've got. Um, do you so, think it's, do you think it's easier now or harder to do that? Harder. Um, much harder because of the the competitiveness. Yes, like the, because there's so much more out yep. there. The market is a lot more cluttered than it was when I started. Um, it's a lot more wine out there. You were a lot more unique then. Now oh yeah, not, you're I'm, not so unique. I'm not. I'm in no in no way, shape, or form unique these days. Um, and yeah, I reckon it's it'd be really tough to to start now. Um, it, the people that will do well. I think are the people that are committed to the selling of it, um, and you've basically got to, as I said, get in front of as many people as possible, and um, yeah, you've got to sell your booze. Can't leave it to somebody else to do it. <laughs> um, something that I found uh, interesting when I was travelling to the, the US, and particularly regions that uh, you know very very well developed for wine production on the western side of the US was um, what, I, what I was told were called custom crush pads. Mm-hmm. These facilities where uh, it wasn't necessarily someone's winery. It was a facility that was set up so that a lot of little producers could make their wine there. Is that something that you encountered when you were working there? Yeah, there was a couple of um, notable examples in Oregon, particularly one called... Um, Oh, the Carlton Winemakers Studio. The first place I went to in Willamette. Yeah. Um, that was that was only a couple of years old when I was there. Mm-hmm. I, they may have only been in the second vintage or something like that. Uh, it was a great facility. Um, 
And I think they probably took... I mean, that's not in the city. It's down in that's, that's the Willamette Valley. That's one of the furthest parts away from Portland, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Carlton, Yamhill like Carlton's, um, yeah, one of the further parts of the Willamette Valley. But... Um, I think they probably modelled, they probably took more cues from the European cooperative okay. yeah. system, um, but without, but, but putting more of a rather than a growers, brand. Rather than growers being a cooperative, it's the winemakers who are the cooperative. That's right. right. It's, it's brands being, being, small brands yeah. being a cooperative as opposed to growers being a cooperative to get economies of scale. So they, they seek out their own fruit source, but they come, they collectively are utilising the facilities yeah. for, the, for each of their brands. Yeah. And there's been a, a few others. I'm, there's probably plenty of good examples of it in the States now, and there aren't a lot of examples that I know of in Australia Yeah, that have been set up specifically for that. Um, but But... Wineries who lease out space to, you know, contract winemakers, or not contract winemakers, but like winemakers who need some space for their yeah. brand, there's a lot more going on now than there was when you started. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's also, you know, more examples of urban wineries as well, but probably more like accessible for the general public as well. Yeah. So yeah. has, it, has it been interesting sort of seeing th- th- those kind of developments in the industry? It has. I'm, I'm honestly surprised that it hasn't been taken further mm-hmm. by now. Um, there's certainly difficulties getting a, um, an urban winery up and running. Um, permits, basic permits, permits, permits councils. Um, I think breweries have been a lot more successful than wineries have been. Sure. Um, probably because they need a little less space. Yes. Um, and there's sort of not necessarily as much activity in a fairly condensed part of the year as there is with wine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of wasted space in wineries, but uh, and a lot of infrastructure that's set up just to be used three months of the year. Yeah. Um, but a brewery, you can pump out beer five days a week if you yeah, want in a fairly small space. Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, I'm surprised there aren't there aren't more. Yep. Um, the only thing that's really kept me from doing it is probably having the money to do it, um, or me pursuing some kind of investor or another entity to to get it up and running. Mm. I think I've just maybe I've considered it to be a bit too risky. I don't know. I just that was kind of the original goal, and it's never been realised yet my brand I don't know whether I'll ever do it or whether I'm um, past the concept now but um, I think for the industry in general it'd be great to see mm-hmm. because it's a great way for consumers to engage with wine yep. um, for them to see how it's made and there's little examples like I know um, Giant Steps Innocent Bystander out in Hillsville have made quite an effort to keep or to integrate the winery with the, the tasting room, yep. the huge glass wall yep. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and look, there's always going to be things like OH&S restrictions and public liability and um, difficulty m- merging the general public with a essentially a work site. Um, but, yeah, I'd love to see a really good one done in Melbourne. Mm. 
That's the, guy, the noisy ritual guys. Yeah, um, I had Alex on the podcast before. Yeah, excellent, good. And, good. That, and that's also where I made my wine last year. Yeah, well, I think they're making a pretty good fist of it. Not, um, sorry to say I haven't actually set foot in the door. I've been meaning to, but... Um, it's wrong side of town for you, I think. Yeah, bit, I'm a bit of a hike. I'm a South boy. <laughs> it's just around the corner for me. Yeah. Um, and uh, how did the Craft and Co uh, become a part of uh, become part of your life and, and sort of brought you back into that business that we sort of had in your early days? Yeah. Well, um, I suppose the best answer to that is to look at the trajectory of urban wineries um, because I, I did have my little winery in Cheltenham which was kind of in a light industrial area of Cheltenham and um, it's just a tiny little warehouse space but um, I very foolishly went to the council and told them what I was doing and uh, they they had no idea what to do with me um, so they sent somebody down and they said oh well, we you just have to set yourself up like any other food business because we don't have a category mm. for you. Mm. So you've got to be like a commercial kitchen. So they were going to get me to rip up all the floors and seal all the walls and do all of this stuff that for my um, my size and my um, my bank balance was just not going to allow. So I just said, stuff it, and I'd moved out. Um, and at that time, I had a friend who... Uh, was and still is the assistant winemaker at um, Crittenden Estate and they were leasing this great winery building here at Bangholm which is in the far southern suburbs of Melbourne mm-hmm. um, kind of near Chelsea for the listeners who have no idea where Bangholm is because most people don't and I'd be surprised if most of them know where Chelsea is yeah well if you sort of follow the bay around past Bo Morris and keep going um, it's kind of down that way before you get onto the Peninsula Freeway, right? Um, and there's uh, so they were making their Monte uh, Peninsula wines up in town, so to speak. And uh, they said, "Oh, you can move in with us. We got a bit of space." So I started uh, making my wine here back in 2009, and um, they and I've been here ever since. And the Crittenden guys um, built a new winery down at their vineyard in Tramana, which is a lovely new space and they've got a great tasting room and stuff now um and when they moved out um i remember talking to the guy that ran australian winemakers um paul baggio and he um he and i had discussed building a winery for uh to showcase his winemaking equipment like a working winery to so that people would come in and see how all the gear worked and we talked about that 10 years ago and um so I called him up and I said, hey, the lease is available on this place. Um, you still want to do that? Yeah. And in the intervening years, he had um, embarked on the Craft & Co concept in Collingwood um, of having a little, essentially an urban um, distillation and brewery centre. And he said, yeah, well, this would be a great accompaniment to that. It would be the winery aspect of... Um, of that whole kind of urban beverage production concept. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he took the lease and I run the winery now and I make some wine for him and for the Craft & Co. And uh, I make my wines here and then there's um, some other clients like 
you, James, who make their wines at Craft & Co and uh, Ruler Wines from Yarra Valley, Matt East, and uh, Out of Step Wine Co as well. And, yeah, it's a cosy little family now. Works, mm. works really well. Yeah. Well, I certainly had a, a fantastic experience this year making the wines, uh, you know, in, in collaboration with, uh, with, with yourself and the other guys. It, was, it's, it's, like, it, it kind of it made me think of that concept of the, that custom crush pad, you know, the Carlton Winemaker Studio where, you know, you can do your own little project but you, you share it with someone else and you taste each other's wines and you talk about them, you talk about what you like and mm. maybe, uh, you know, how you might kind of finesse something. Uh, so I, I kind of like that that element of it and I think that helps in general as far as wine production so I, I guess in that kind of section of the the wine industry as far as small producers and people that are doing their own little brand I, I, I like that kind of the way that they they get together whether it's at you know festivals or just out in in the regions and and yeah they just share stuff they mm. have a meal together and share wines and talk about their influences so uh yeah like i i love it and obviously there's a fantastic sort of cellar door here as well and they do some great food you know it gets pretty busy so yes yeah, it's it's, it's, it's an weekends, opportunity for, for people to, to to get down and and taste the wines that you've been making for a few, few years now yeah look the the place is um going ahead in leaps and bounds of Rapidly developing. Rapidly developing, yeah. We're looking out over the the gardens and the um, and the chook shed. Um, so there's chickens here, and there's going to be um, livestock here as well, both to run in the vineyard to keep the grasses down, and also to um, eventually end up on the plate. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a funny little oasis, a kind of rural oasis in the middle of the city. Yeah. Um, but it is. It is really beneficial. You're talking about having that collaborative approach and being able to talk to other winemakers about how you make your wines and getting their input. And um, I often think of like when you run your own businesses, uh, all of the people who are making wine here are. Um, it can be a bit isolating at times, and you can spend a lot of time gazing at your own navel and working on your own stuff and um it's it's nice sometimes to have to be able to bounce ideas off other people mm. um and get that input and that's something that I hadn't had for oh, almost 10 years and yeah it's really cool it's nice to be walking past the press and just go hey James what do you think of this mm. and shove a glass in your face and yeah so what do you think of that? And just get a, a rough opinion, or, or do you think this is all right? Or do you what do you think of the phenolics on that? Or it's um it's lovely to get a second opinion, and um, yeah, it builds a nice nice little community. Yeah, it's good well, for the wines too. I think. I yeah, I, I do encourage people to obviously check out the Craft and Co in Collingwood uh, on Smith Street. I think it is. Yep. Um, but definitely head out to the farm. Uh, but do seek out some of the story wines because, um, like, like Riesling in particular, is uh, it's 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 one of the best, uh, like, and most consistent 
Riesling producers I've I've encountered in Australia outside of you know really heartlands like Clare Valley and Eden Valley it's it's really exciting to sort of see have you had an opportunity to sort of look back at older vintages of, 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 of some of your wines and to sort of think about how you might have changed things yeah yeah it's um it's a nice place to be 12 13 years down the track um to open some of the old wines and see how they're going and yeah, I think some of the earlier vintages, the storage conditions probably weren't fantastic. But despite that, particularly the old Shiraz wines from like, you know, 05, 06, 07, those kind of wines are all holding up really, really well. Mm. Um, the the older Rieslings, I only really started making Riesling in 11 and that was, as a lot of listeners will know, it's an incredibly cold, wet vintage. But, gee, that's looking pretty smart that one that 11 Riesling um Henty Riesling um and it's it's a lovely thing to be able to do to pull out an old wine and share it with someone and say this isn't looking too shabby is it like um it, it is a nice point of satisfaction um on the other hand of course you get the old one and you go oh gee that's well and truly past it yeah <laughs> glad I don't have any more of Thanks that sitting in the warehouse yeah. <laughs> by and large they're they, they've held up well, though. I, I can't complain. Awesome. Well, uh, look, it has been great to, to hear a bit more about your, your background. Uh, if people want to find out more information about the story uh, and all, all the Rory Lane wines, <laughs> um, websites, social media accounts. Yeah, thestory.com.au. Um, socials uh, Story Wines. So Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. You'll find me. Fantastic. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to next vintage and, and tasting more of the, the story in the Craft & Co. ones. Yeah, bring on Vintage 18. <laughs> and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining me on this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Uh, thank you also to uh, Earbuds, the podcast network, who are supporting me significantly uh, and helping me run the the Vincast live tonight. I'm really excited to be part of the network. And thank you, of course, to Sheba for sponsoring this episode. Uh, please do follow me on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Wino. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. And you can follow Vino Intrepido on Instagram at Vino Intrepido. Uh, I'd love for you to come and check out my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino. Uh, there's lots and lots of videos of tasting wines. Uh, also, you can see some of the fun things that I did at the Craft & Co. farm this year when I was making my wine under the uh, Intrepid Winemaking section. Uh, and please do subscribe to the channel and leave a comment in, on some of the videos. Uh, I'd love for you to uh, check out the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Podbean, uh, Spotify, possibly, uh, iHeartRadio, lots of different ways you can subscribe to the podcast, which means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, and also, I'd love for you to leave me a rating and a review. It does help out significantly in terms of providing great feedback, but also reaching a bigger audience. Uh, of course, you can find all the information on my website, intrepidwino.com, uh, and you can uh, find ways of getting in contact with me there uh, and also ch- check out some of the writing I've done in the past. But uh, guys, until next time, bye. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. 
earbudsnetwork.com.